0: We don't have targets for removals. But you did. I, I don't know what, what, what you're referring We've to. We've just you? heard
1: from the previous evidence. This is the Weekly Economics Podcast and I'm Dave Powell filling in for Aisha this week. This is a day of national shame and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy. Britain's Interior Minister Amber Rudd Prime has minister. resigned. The Windrush scandal outraged the nation last year, but last week the Home Office reinstated deportation flights to Jamaica for criminal offenders who they say are foreign nationals. We're still waiting for the government to publish its Windrush Lessons Learned review.
2: Before the review is even complete, why why are you deporting
1: people? Meanwhile, Parliament passed a new immigration bill last month promising to control the number and type of people coming
2: to the UK. We are taking this approach to ensure that we can attract the brightest and the best people to the UK, those who will help our economy flourish.
1: The Home Secretary came under fire for proposing a £30,000 income threshold for highly skilled immigrants coming from EU countries.
2: I have met lots of people who earn way more than £30,000 You have literally no discernible skills.
1: (laughs) And more generally, immigrants are being scapegoated for everything from stagnating wages to pressure on public services. Well I think it's a gravy train now at the
0: moment, isn't it? Everyone
1: wants to be over there. Our
3: national health is suffering. Is there a big problem with immigration in this area? No, I wouldn't say. No. No.
0: It's too cold for them.
1: A lot of the debate that we hear about immigration is made in economic terms. On the surface, it's all about what counts as a contribution to the country, who puts in and who takes out. But it's also about identity, race and belonging. It can be hard at the moment to imagine a more humane immigration policy might be possible, but that's exactly what we're going to try to do. In this episode, I'm asking, what should a progressive immigration policy look like? And is it even possible? So we couldn't have a better group of people here this week to talk about all of this. Uh, first up is Satbir Singh, Chief Executive of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Satbir, welcome to the podcast. Hi. And joining us for the second time, it says here, is Asad Raymond, who's Executive Director of the anti-poverty charity War on One. Hello, Asad. Hi. And also back for the second time is Maya Goodfellow, who's author of a forthcoming book on Britain's immigration politics. Hello, Maya. Hi. And what's your book called?
3: Hostile environment.
1: Uh, very good. Well, speaking of hostile environment, we're going to start with a bit of a recap on where we are on the hostile environment policy and deportations and the immigration bill, all of that grim stuff. Then I'm hoping we can get more optimistic. But let's start um, with you, Sabir. if that's all right. Um, most people will be familiar with last year's Windrush scandal, but can you do a bit of a recap? How did we get to that point?
2: So we got to the point where we were last year which ended with a minister resigning and lots of policies changing names but not very much substance because in the 70s we introduced this crazy idea in the UK called immigration law and you know, prior to the late 60s it really hadn't existed. We'd had free movement of some sort or another forever. Right. People could come here freely from the Commonwealth or from countries that Britain yet hadn't given independence to And they came here as British as everybody else. Towards the end of that period, we introduced rules that said, actually, no, we don't really want any more people. And that was partly a reaction to Enoch Powell and the Rivers of Blood. And many of those people who had already arrived didn't ever get paperwork that said, I was already here. And that was because they were maybe low income. And again, if you were. Black and in Britain in the 70s, the chances are you were probably paid less than everybody else. So traveling abroad wasn't something on your list of things to do. Fast forward 40 years, the government introduces this concept called the hostile environment, and it really was called that by the government, if you can believe it, which basically said people without paperwork are going to be starved out. We're going to deny them healthcare. we're going to deny them the right to work, they won't be able to rent housing, they'll have no access to benefits If they report a crime to the police, they will be put into the process for immigration removal if they don't have the right paperwork. So what you had was very elderly people who had been here for years and years and years going to a routine appointment with their doctor or to get their pension, being picked up as an undocumented migrant and thrown into the system of brutality. Some of them detained, a lot of them removed, some of them denied cancer care, lots of people actually died the government department the home office killed people in the process of this over the last over the last decade and wow. um, you know it culminated in amber Rudd resigning and Sajid Javid being wheeled in quite quickly but not a great deal of change since then
3: yeah and i think that i think that this point actually about the history of how we got to this point is incredibly important because i think far too few people still understand or at least understood before the hostile environment and all of the impacts of that became such public uh, news was that this is a product of britain's imperial history so people were coming as citizens to this country because of britain's empire and what we actually saw from the 60s onwards was attempts to keep people out of the country on the basis of race. And I think that that history isn't well enough understood still, despite the fact that we've had Windrush in the news in this way. What happened with successive pieces of legislation since the 60s was governments made it more difficult for people from particular parts of the Commonwealth to come to the UK. We know this from ministerial speeches, from ministers at the time, who admitted that a lot of this legislation was colour-coded. So it's not it's not a coincidence that the people who are affected by the hostile environment are Black Britons. But I think there's another point to this. What we heard time and again, when this was in the news from ministers, from conservative politicians, but also from Labour politicians, and I do have to point out that it was Labour and Conservative mm. governments that have created, they have got us to this point, it's not just the Conservatives, although it is the Conservatives who introduced the hostile environment. What we heard from them time and again was that the debate needed to change. We needed to talk about immigration differently, we needed to talk about it more positively, but they also continued to pivot to talking about undocumented migrants so we need to keep the hostile environment the government said because of undocumented migrants but what that does is that ignores the very huge number of reasons people can become undocumented. So it it was the dehumanization of immigrants that got us to this point. And then to me, it seemed like it was the dehumanization of immigrants that the government wanted to continue focusing Mm. on by talking about people as undocumented, as if being undocumented means you are automatically a criminal. You can become undocumented because you can't afford the, the price of the visa. You might not know that there's been changes, so the ground can literally change under your feet. Um, or you might be really scared. You might be scared because you live in a country where a government oversees a set of pol- policies that are called the hostile environment.
1: And what have we, what have we learned? Like there's a, there's a lessons learned review going on into Windrush. Have we learned
0: anything? Because deportations have just started again, right? So what have we learned? I wanted to go maybe just go a step back actually it, just just on that po- on your one of your points. I mean actually I I would argue that Im- you know immigration controls aren't simply from the 1960s. If we look right back to the 1900s we look at the Aliens mm. Act against in terms of against mm. Jewish migrants. It's always been I think a feature of uh, absolutely of empire and of this idea of the other. And I think it's really important to remember, you know, the 1968 Commonwealth Immigra- Immigration Act, you know, which was rushed through parliament three days by the then Labour government of Harold Wilson, the Home Secretary, Jim Callaghan, argued that the reason why this bill was needed was, of course, that unless you had it, and it was primarily created to prevent uh, Kenyan Asians with British passports being able to arrive here in India, it was an absolute colour bar because it, for the first time it differentiated between your your right to come into this country between what the old colonies, i.e. the white colonies of the of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, et cetera, and the so-called new colonies of which were basically where brown and black people were. And I've I find it really fascinating because when you listen to what Jim Callan said at the time, you know, he talked about that the reason why we need this bill is because it, without it, we'd have to make massive investments in social services, right? To deal with these influx of of, of people. And it's two weeks later that Enoch Powell makes his rivers of blood speech. It's not that Labour's responding to the rivers of blood speech. It's actually that Labour is legitimising the Mm. very narrative Mm. that allows Enoch Powell then to start talking about rivers of blood and, of course, mobilising large sections of the Labour movement, trade unionists and working people out on the streets supporting Enoch Powell. And And that actually has been... One of the problems of all of the migration debate, and it's run through from New Labour to, I mean, I would say you know the debacle that happened a couple of weeks ago, and it's interesting. I was looking at, I think there's a there's a quote in the Times in 1968 which said this will go down as one of the most disgusting instructions from whips to Labour MPs to ever vote for this bill. And I thought it could have just been pertinent to what whips were saying uh, a few weeks ago to the the new immigration bill. But what's happened clearly throughout British politics is that when you want to play the race card, you play the race card around migration and immigration. And that has been consistent. And you can't separate the conversation around the hostile environment now to what was taken really against war against asylum seekers that ran throughout New Labour and of Margaret Thatcher's 1979 speech, we're being swamped by people of an alien culture. It has been part and parcel of British politics, not the far-right politics, but of mainstream politics of playing the race card for electoral gain. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit more
1: about what's in this new immigration bill? What does it actually do? Is it it an extension of the hostile environment uh, to EU citizens or what's in there?
3: Well, I think that what we are seeing the government want to do, and maybe Satbia can talk a bit more about the specifics of the bill, but trying to bring EU, we don't know what the immigration system is going to look like into the future, right? So But what it seems from what they're saying is they do want to bring EU citizens into what is an already incredibly unfair system for non-EU citizens. So what you're seeing from a lot of people who have already been campaigning against the hostile environment is saying, we're not going forward in a positive way. What we should be talking about is how we level up the rights of non-EU migrants, right? But instead, we seem to be working from the other way, which is bringing EU citizens potentially into what we know is an incredibly cruel, unfair system. We know that the fees are incredibly high. A lot of people can't afford to pay these visa fees. People are really, really struggling. They're separated from their loved ones because of the salary threshold. So we don't see any kind of consideration in government about what this is doing to people's lives. This point is, in, is, is incredibly important because we talk about immigration often in the abstract, but these are human beings moving across borders, so we should be resisting this. We should be resisting an attempt to bring more people into what is an already incredibly unfair system.
2: Yeah, i thought that's an excellent summary of everything that's awful in the immigration <laughs> bill, um, and I completely agree that... You know, if you're rich, if you're wealthy, if you're a high net worth individual, movement will always to some extent be free. Even if it's not completely frictionless, you will have someone who goes and queues and negotiates with someone at an embassy for you or, or someone who deals with that whole process for you. So the idea that we are kind of creating a more equal sort of level playing field, which is this line that the government keep coming back to on the ending of free movement is just a nonsense. It's not the other aspect of the immigration bill that's really troubling and really runs through the last three years since the, the referendum and even before that is, you know, there's been this talk about taking back control. There's this great sort of victory. And when people got control, they didn't know what the hell to do with it. So so you had this, this gambit, this sort of offering to the public that we'll take back control of our immigration system. And just looking at some of the the kind of polling breakdowns after the referendum, huge swathes of the Asian diaspora population, for example, voted for Brexit because they were told that you mm. can't bring your granny here from Gujarat or your your wife here from Nigeria because of all of those Europeans coming here. Mm. And, and people bought into that. What you've got now is a complete failure to think about what an immigration system could look like. So they're sort of pushing through this Fairly bare bones piece of legislation that literally just says free movement's cancelled and we give all the power to create a new system to the Home Secretary without Parliament. So they haven't come up with a new system despite them having an entire government department and access to people like us who've been trying to get them to listen to us for two years. They've deferred that to the future.
1: And where's, we talked a lot of people might know, you know, what the Conservatives position on a lot of this is, but where are Labour at, at the moment, in this debate? What's their policy on this?
3: I mean, what the Labour Party say is that freedom of movement will end, right? So when Brexit happened, and they accepted the result, they said freedom of movement will end, but it's treated as if it's a passive thing, and not an active decision that you would then have to make. And what the Labour Party have done is they've tried to say that immigration policy that they would like to design in the future would be tied to the economy. And I think, there's a problem with that, because again, as you mentioned in the introduction, there is this problem with tying migration to economic contributions. And it's actually not too dissimilar from the rhetoric that we saw from New Labour in the very early years of the New Labour government. There was a lot of talk about how immigration was good for the economy, so people could come into the country on that basis. And I'm not saying a Corbyn-led government would be identical to a New Labour government on immigration, but it's interesting that there is that that intersection of where they think that they can win the public over on this but they haven't they've been very quiet otherwise and i think they haven't capitalized on what happened with windrush in the way in a way that they could have if they wanted to push the conversation further and i think just to add very very quickly to to what the government seems to want to do i think it's quite important to realize that from in the white paper there was a suggestion and and also in the plans for if there was a no deal what the immigration system would look like for non-EU migrants there are plans that people could come into the country from the EU but on these temporary visas for a specific amount of time those kinds of temporary visas are incredibly bad for people when we talk about stuff like integration which I use in air quotes this is it doesn't mean people can settle in their community and make connections it means that their, their existence and their right to stay in this country is always contingent upon what government says.
1: Asad, you're in charge. Imagine you're in charge of a progressive border policy in immigration system. So what would that look like to you? If you're going to go back to the drawing board, reverse all of this horrible stuff and do something better and more progressive, what would you do?
0: I think there's two parts of that. One is actually having the right conversation and having a progressive conversation around migration, race and British identity and its problem the problem is that conversation has not happened in fact actually i would say unfortunately even progressive parliamentarians are relying on the same triangulation which is we'll keep quiet on migration because we know that that's where there's a lot of problems and hopefully we'll have some other. it'll give us room to put forward other socially progressive views, which actually is what New Labour argued, right? Throw people the bone of the migrants and we'll be able to move forward. You can't simply do that. You can't simply have a different conversation because that's where we got to in terms of Brexit, that the migrant, mm-hmm. because we've never had a progressive conversation around mm-hmm. immigration and race, it fueled a migration debate which was largely about immigration and identity. So, you can't, I would say, you can't, it's not simply policies that are the answer. It's actually the political mm-hmm. space in which those happen. Then, if you take a step back and say, the glo- you can't have a British migration policy without really talking about global migration policy. And I start from the other end, I start from the not about what rights do people have to come into this country? I want to talk about the right of people not to move, right? And how do you guarantee that? How do you make sure everybody has a right to a dignified life? And that's where Labour could have, and progressives all across the world, could have a much better conversation. Like, what does that mean? It means a living wage for everybody around the world. It means the right to housing and education and health. We can actually start to talk about a vision which doesn't put British people i.e. when people talk about British people, they talk about white British people, not anybody else, not the rest of us, and the rest of the Global South. I think unless you start to have that conversation, you then have this polarised debate around, it's all about open borders or it's about tough borders. Mm -hmm. Actually, open borders to me, as somebody who's previously argued for that, doesn't really answer the question because we're still only talking about a very small percentage of people. It's usually the people who've got the economic means, who are the... Elites of our own countries have got, who were able to move in the first place. So I'm, I'm interested in the 85 percent of people who have been forced to migrate, but are more, migrating internally displacement. So for me, that's a very important part of the immigration debate, which isn't happening. I could go on and say, of course, it's you know, you, you, we have to fulfil our international obligations, and the right of asylum, we have to live under all of those and do all those, but we also have to expand the argument. And then that means taking on the argument of economic migration. In my in my view, there's no such thing as economic migrant. There is are survival migration, and that until we start to talk in that language, we're not going to be able to move forward.
1: Yeah, how do how do we? What is the language that starts to change the debate around this, Sabir?
2: Well, I think the starting point is just an acceptance of the fact that migration happens; people will move. There's a sort of tendency in the response to kind of more progressive arguments about migration that we are being less realistic. Again, it's that kind of dichotomy, that false dichotomy that's set up between you know, tough borders and open borders. I'm agnostic about how many people move, where they move, what they choose to do, except in cases of forced migration where obviously we should be talking about their right to not move. I just see a world in which people have always moved. And the question that we've got to we've got to grapple with is how do we respond to that? Do we create a system that allows people to remain documented, that makes journeys safe, that ensures that there isn't huge disruption to them or to other communities in the process? And it's impossible to get to that point without grappling with the politics of this, which is about race, which is about identity, which is about all different sorts of insecurity, which are kind of bundled up and made about immigration
1: this is all grand but there's still a lot of people out there you know who might see our current migration policy as too lax i mean that is where as if we're if we believe what we're told that is where the opinion polls are at so how do you square that circle how can you win the argument for a better policy if people out there are uh, saying
0: oh you know there's too many migrants everywhere But, you know, we don't accept the argument of the majority of people think we should bring bring, bring back capital punishment or that we should be torturing people. I mean, that's a ridiculous start. For me, it's a ridiculous starting point. The argument has got to be not do we design policies that speak to the basis place of in terms of society that's been generated by decades of the right-wing media of popularizing and formulating frames it's actually what is our progressive idea and then how do we generate support for that Mm. and that does mean actually hard graft work it does really mean taking on racist ideas it does mean dismantling and questioning what does english and british identity mean it does mean teaching people about what empire is the fact that. 50% of the British public think empire was great and only 23% think that the empire was something to be shameful tells us the scale of the challenge that we have but we shouldn't shift away from that and so that's where I I
3: I mean I I would agree with all of that um but I think that in the meantime I think there's a couple of different things you can do and maybe you can think about this in different ways I agree I agree with Asad that there needs to be a focus on this global picture and thinking about people having the right to stay but I also think at the same time as you're working on that you can quite simply make the system a bit fairer. I don't there is something about using the moment of windrush in a more effective way of saying these are human beings look at what government policy is doing to them and I think there's a number of different things, number of different ways you do that. One is by saying actually these people are not your enemies. And when people really think about it in human terms, Paul Gilroy talks about how people are already living a multicultural life in a lot of communities up and down the country. It is often politicians telling them that they're pitted against one another. And I'm not saying that to minimize the very real forms of racism that do exist in Britain, but I think often we're painted this picture where people can't get along because of racial differences or religious differences, and it's assumed that that is natural. I think we need to really challenge that. That's something that the right do very well as they play on what you talked about before, these identity issues. They say, when people don't like immigration, it's a natural reaction to difference. It's not natural. It's constructed over hundreds of years of being told that you're different from someone because of the color of your Mm -hmm. skin, right? So we need to go to the heart of that. And that is going to take a long time. I don't think there's an easy win with that, but I think actually those are the discussions we need to take on. And then there is the economic side of saying it's not people coming into the country that have created our long-term economic problems. You always blame the the last person who came in for things that have been building up for the past 30 years. Where is the logic in that? Let's talk about why we are where we are as a country with such low Wages with crumbling public services. It's not the people who are who are coming into the country that are doing that. And I think I have problems with those arguments because I don't want to reduce people to economic contributors. But I do think we need to challenge them because those myths are so widely believed.
2: I think I think that's all I, I fully agree with all of that. I think with with I get very tired of this kind of idea that public opinion is fixed, that public opinion is this monolith. Something that was sort of incredible about watching the Windrush scandal unfold last year was everybody's in favor of the idea of control, right, of anything. You wouldn't want uncontrolled anything, whether it was immigration or jelly babies, because, because uncontrolled mm. suggests that you are not in control. As soon as people get to know what control means... The reaction to Windrush was, surely this can't possibly be happening. How did they allow this to happen? And it was very easy for the government to then say, well, this was all an unintended consequence, but this is the way that control is designed. I think when you do show people what control means... You, know, you can look at polling on very specific bits of immigration policy which are kind of routine, which are just part and parcel of the way the immigration system works and the vast majority of the public look at that and go, that's abhorrent. The way that their families are split up or the way we detain people or the fact that we deport people who've been born here, people don't agree with that and it's about piecing that together and saying, hey, you know, if you want immigration control the way they're selling it to you, this is exactly what it is. It's what it says on the tin. And, uh,
1: but, but, there's, but there's a, a
2: danger,
0: right? Yeah.
2: And it's one that you know i
0: think we have to be conscious of because it's the debate around what is a good mig- immigrant and a bad immigrant mm. right mm-hmm. because i i absolutely agree that there was a lot of genuine uh, support and uh, from all sections of society about Windrush, right? People are genuinely shocked because what they pictured in their minds was this Windrush generation of old grannies of all people who came and did stuff. But but it's interesting now when people talk about the Jamaica flights, they talk about you know these are people with criminal convictions. They're young people. They're this. They're that. And I think we get back into what is the problem is how do you put forward an argument about what is a good economic immigrant, bad economic immigrant? That's where I do think, you know, you're absolutely right. We have to have a reformist and a revolutionary position, right? We have to transform the immigration debate as well as make sure piecemeal we are taking on. We're ending indefinite in detention. These are simple things that we can do. We're ending deportation flights. We're making sure we live up to our international obligations in terms of asylum. We don't contribute to this idea of walls and fences and offshoring of immigration controls to sub-Saharan Africa. These are all within the purview of, of politicians to be able to do. But I think moving beyond that to actually generally gra- grapple with that is a much bigger political idea. It's part and parcel of the struggle to create progressive constituency to talk about mm. economic as well as social transformation around immigration. So uh, what are your organisations or campaigns? What are you guys doing
1: to change all of this stuff, Sabir? So
2: Um, So we work on a lot of the reform work, making sure that enforcement is minimal and humane, making sure that routes to regularisation are being opened up and they're accessible to people, we provide legal services to people, we help people become and remain documented and we're starting to work a lot more on some of the bigger, more radical work around shifting narratives and making sure that we're having a healthier, more progressive conversation in the UK. Um,
3: Yeah, so I mean, I'm not an organisation, I'm just speaking for myself, but... (laughs) I've written this book over the past two years that looks at the history of the debate that will hopefully contextualise where we're at and and how we arrived here And this point about the link between race and immigration is incredibly important because often politicians talk about controlling immigration as being good for race relations in Britain. So I think we need to understand that. But I suppose what I was trying to do with this book is to challenge some of the anti-immigration arguments, but also to encourage people to go out there and challenge these ideas in their own communities. I don't think that this can be done by me just saying, this is how the system should be, or this is what is wrong with it. It has to be a collective effort because we are where we are because of decades and decades and decades of terrible politics on immigration and no one being willing to challenge this. So we need people all around the country to begin to do that.
0: Uh, That's right. well, absolutely. So we, we pride ourselves on, on speaking truth to power. So we see ourselves as very much that unless we take on the broader politics of the right and of the far right and the authoritarian right and its narrative around walls and fences, we're not going to create the space. So as a human rights organization, we call for absolutely to, for the UK to live up to its obligation and for the global world, world to live up to its obligation to existing UN protection for, for refugees. But uh, the big area that we work on is, is, one, is trying to take on the argument about economic migration and one of the areas is specifically to try and look at what protection there is for climate migration and then the other big area we're looking at is what is the protection needed for internally displaced people i.e., what is the right not to move demands around for example a global living wage the right to education right to health rights that were granted 70 years ago in the universal declaration of human rights were never enshrined and never put in practice and we're very much focused on that so uh, thanks very much, everyone, for coming along. Maya Goodfellow,
1: thank you for joining me. So when is your book out?
3: Later this year.
1: That sounds a bit vague.
3: Yeah, uh, September, October.
1: <laughs> uh, Asa Raymond from War on One. Uh, how can people keep up with the work of the organisation and with you?
0: Support us. I mean, I have to say, you know, join us, support us, take action together. We have to build up our power through collective action. Is it a website or something? What's yep, www.waronwhat.org.
1: Very good. Uh, and uh, Sapir Singh from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Same question. How can people
2: keep in touch? Support us, but support them first. Um, <laughs> because he said it first. Uh, we're at jcwi.org.uk and you can follow us on Twitter as well.
1: So that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield with help from Florrie Burton this week, and we were brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I've been Dave Powell, and don't worry, Aisha will be back for another episode as normal, this time next week.